failure is what you're fearing, but then you find a way that failure is actually learning and experiencing or realize that there is no such thing as failure if you mm-hmm. kind of just keep moving forward, it can actually be a really pleasurable experience. Not only is it not as bad as you think, it can actually make the whole thing better. Really, it's about like finding what you're passionate about because that will give energy and value to others and then that will become something in the future. I love the idea of goals. I set myself a really audacious goal at the end of last year and in my mind, I was like, there's no way I'll be able to achieve this. And I did. It was a financial goal and I I never thought in a million years I'd reach it and I I got $20 over it. I wish I'd made the goal bigger because I probably would have gone $20 over the bigger target. So I love goal setting. I love focusing on the future and, and having something that kind of guides all your decisions along the way. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Y2 podcast, where I interview interesting and noteworthy people to learn about their journeys and specifically look to understand their beliefs, values, mindset, and the resources they use to get started and succeed on their journey. I'm your host, Dustin Elliott, and today's guest is Michael Back. Now, Michael is a self-proclaimed customer experience enthusiast, social media dude, and public speaker. He's been named as one of the top 50 most influential social media users in finance in 2014 and 2015 by the Financial Standard, and now he works with various small businesses across Australia to build and hone their own amazing client experiences and bring into focus the intersection between what they do and how the world perceives this. But honestly, with that being said, I think an even more important distinction, which sums Michael up really well, is that he's actually received an award for the, quote, always being interested, unquote, in primary school. That innate curiosity has now grown and flourished into a man that has an incredible thirst for knowledge when it comes to life and people, leading him to have a profound, insightful outlook on life, which can benefit us all. In this chat, we unravel Michael's very human story and that of which any one of us could have lived as he makes sense of himself and the world around him. We hear about someone who was unhappy with where he was in life and took some decisive actions to do something about it. We talk about the value of playing, trusting yourself, and being in the driver's seat in life and getting comfortable with the fact that our journey isn't always just a straight line like we sometimes think it should be. But with that being said, let's get to today's chat. Michael, welcome to the Y2 Podcast. Thank you very much, Dustin. It's lovely to be here. My, I'm really excited for this chat. Um, I, I've, got a, I've got a belief in my life that when certain people you look up to and respect say you need to speak to somebody, you need to speak to them. And uh, obviously a big thank you to uh, Corey for originally introducing us. And uh, a big thank you as well to while we're on air as uh, you're actually one of, the, one of the first people I reached out to as well too when I, uh, before I started the podcast is yourself and Rohi Bagava. Um, so I feel like I've been having uh, interviewed Rohi and now interviewing you, the two people I reached out to when I started the podcast, it started to come full circle. So um, thank you for making this happen. I really appreciate it. Oh, no worries. I'm, uh, I'm way more impressed with your ability to stick it out. I, I started and I, I learned all the stuff and I got it all set up and at this point in time, I've only got one episode out there. I'd like to change that. But uh, when you told me that, was this number 14? Yeah, I think it's number 14, yeah, around that. Yeah. Very impressed that you uh, there, followed through and you just keep going. <laughs> well, hopefully this is a catalyst for you getting your podcast going as well, too, maybe yeah. in the future as well, too. But uh, turn the gauntlet down. Exactly. I needed that. <laughs> <laughs> On radio as well, too. So, 
but I'm really excited to get into your chat today. Obviously, we, we, uh, we've, we've been talking this afternoon a bit about your story and about your, your journey you've gone on and all the sorts of lessons and the things that have sort of cultivated through from the experiences. But as always, we want to go back a little bit um, and uh, kind of before, obviously, where you're at today, you had a pretty powerful moment in Chile, didn't you? I did, yeah. And I was... Um... Yeah, it was in the Chilean desert, which gives it like an extra level of epicness, I suppose. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Yeah, but uh, it's it's funny, right? Because I, I came up with a story I thought I was going to tell. Um, and then literally as I hung up the phone from you um, this morning when I was like, what do you think? Is this the, the right type of story? Uh, I hung up the phone and then this other story just entered my head. <laughs> it happens a lot to me. I, I feel like I just, when I talk to people, I, I get... Um, just on an extra level of energy and inspiration and it, it really helps me. So yeah, it was, it was cool. I kind of knew that that would happen because um, it just happens a lot. But yeah, what happened, I, I, was, I was in the Atacama Desert in Chile and uh, there was a little bit of a backstory. So there, there was this group of people after uni, uh, it was about 12 of us. Uh, we called ourselves the citizens of the world because there was Japanese guy, Mexican guy, um, I think there was a Colombian, uh, a few of us from Australia, but even within the Australian sect, like, you know, one of the boys was Indian, one was Sri Lankan, um, one was, you know, half Italian, half Irish kind of thing. So just this real melting pot of cultures. But anyway, in 2006, we'd been, um, I can't remember, the name. it's like abseiling through waterfalls. I think it's called canyoning. And I had this horrible experience. It's probably like the closest I've been to death where I got my foot caught under a rock and I panicked and I let go of the rope and um, the water was like coming straight into my face and I actually had a concussion because of the, the oh, wow. velocity of the water. It was it was insane. Um, literally had my life flash before <laughs> my eyes. And uh, so it was that was 2006. And then so this was 2009. We were back there for uh, a friend's wedding. Um, and we decided to go sand, sandboarding. So what is sandboarding? It's like snowboarding, but yeah. on the sand dunes. That and, makes sense. Um, you know, group of boys, you know, bit of, you know, bit of macho happening. Um, they were all so excited. And I, I just kind of had this flashback. I'm like, we're doing an adventure sport again, you know, something like a little bit risky. And um, oh, I was crapping myself. Like, and I don't like heights. So, you know, that was part of the thing. Like going down that canyon was a really hard, the, the canyoning was a really <laughs> hard thing for me to do. And then that happened. So, it, you know, it doesn't quell the fear. It, it kind of fuels it. Um, and so when we were going sandboarding, like the whole day, I was just like, can I like find a way out of this? And anyway, like we all kind of had to walk up the sand dune. And I remember all the guys like, you know, the, the more adventurous just jumped straight on there and went straight down the dune. And I was really stalling, you know, doing up the shoelaces and having a chat to people. Someone had come back up and I'd have a chat to them. And I was really procrastinating on this one because I was just like, I, I don't want, I don't want to fall over. Like I don't, I don't want I don't want to embarrass myself again because I'd already embarrassed myself. There was probably a little bit of hype around, you know, what's going to happen to Mikey today. And um, anyway, I decided to go down and I kind of went really slowly at first. And about halfway down, I fell over. And the sand was like really warm and it was soft. And it was actually like, you know, on a scale of zero to 10, it wasn't a 10 out of 10 lovely experience falling over. It's probably like a seven or eight. It was actually nice. It was like <laughs> really? laying on the beach. You yeah. know, it was like that warm sand. And then I kind of just got back up and kept going. And then once I got like to the bottom and, you know, ran up the top of the dune again, because I knew that that feeling of falling over wasn't that bad, I, I had no fear. So I just kept going down and, you know, like coming back up and doing it. And because 
the fear wasn't that scary. I didn't fall over much after that. It was mm. like I was making it right to the bottom. I was going pretty quick, uh, you know, like, and it was probably surprising to the people around me that I was doing something physical successfully. <laughs> that the physical realms have never really been my strong suit. Um, but it was just, a, it was an amazing analogy, I think, and it, it really opened up a few wormholes in my head where I'm like, what about all those other things in my life where I'm too scared to do them? Um, what if the rejection or the pain or the so-called failure actually doesn't feel as bad as you think it is mm. and you're just holding yourself back from these great experiences. Um, so yeah, definitely like sent my mind into a bit of overdrive after that as to what I'd been, you know, what, what sand dunes I'd been avoiding in my life, which actually would have, would have been great experiences. Mm. That's such a beautiful analogy as well too. I think that's, uh, that's incredible. Yeah. Mm. Reminds me too, I know Tim Ferriss talks a lot about this uh, stoicism and, and practicing, practicing what you fear. So practicing poverty, you know, eating eating cheap food, and you know, practicing discomfort, and going, wow, is this really what I fear? Is this is this is this the worst that's going to happen? Kind of thing. So mm. it's uh, yeah, that's incredible. Thanks yeah. for sharing. That. And I suppose that's it too. Is like you know, if failure is what you're fearing, but then you find a way that failure is actually learning and experiencing, and um, you know, you you see the good in failure or realize that there is no such thing as failure if you mm. kind of just keep moving forward it can actually be a really pleasurable experience so mm. not only is it not as bad as you think it can actually make the whole thing better yeah it's kind of weird and then just imagine imagine see all the things you fear and then flipping around to go imagine the things that you'd enjoy yeah and going holy crap if i could enjoy all those things you'd be unstoppable that's exactly right like literally what would stop you like i don't know so true. Yeah. Yeah. That would, be, that would be a really good thing to be able to rewire your brain to feel. Yeah. <laughs> One day we'll plug an app into our head and recharge it. But, or listen to the Y2 podcast. Yes. Hear great stories. <laughs> exactly. We have it. We have that technology already. Shameless plug. Yeah. <laughs> so, so going back a bit, um, as, as we spoke about your, your university degree, I know when I took a look at it, um, it was, correct me if I'm wrong, organizational psychology and accounting, mm-hmm. which to me seems like two very polar opposites of, of business kind of thing. I'd love if you could just kind of take us through a little bit about why organizational psychology and accounting. Yeah, I, I remember I was, a, I was a really deep thinking kid. Like I was, I, I worried a lot. <laughs> um, I remember when I was actually a little kid, I had trouble sleeping because I, I, I think I just like overthought everything. Um, that's probably something that plagues me a little to this day, but, uh, you know, I remember getting, uh, you know, one story, um, I remember I was really unhappy that I didn't have a signature and it was really like troubling me that my friends had signatures and I didn't. So mm. I got my dad one day and we sat together for like five hours at the dining room table until we had a signature I was, I was happy with. So yeah, I've, I've always kind of, uh, I don't know, needed that certainty, um, in my life to just know that I had, had things happening, um, which, funnily enough, has changed a lot lately. Um, but I, I remember distinctly like getting to your kind of teens and not knowing what I was going to be doing after, after school. It was, it was really kind of consuming me. So I, I did a lot of um, like psychometric tests. And mm-hmm. I was fortunate my dad shared an office with some organizational psychologists. And um, I think they were, they were somewhat grooming me to try and you know, <laughs> enter their industry. And I did a little bit of work experience and stuff like that. But they, they did all sorts of tests. And funnily enough, it kept coming up that... I should be doing organizational psychology. I think I did like three or four separate tests and they all came out roughly similar, Mm. which was really interesting. So um, 
I think, you know, I'd always loved business. I'd always been surrounded by business. Um, I remember when my when I was learning to read, my dad used to get me to practice on the financial review. Um, so, yeah, I've always just been immersed in that world. And, you know, in my teenage years, a lot of small business around me through, through my dad's ventures. And um, I always just loved people. Like, I've always been a massive extrovert. Um, and I don't mean in the sense of just liking to, um, you know, being loud and talking. I probably am someone who talks too much and pretty loud, but more in the sense of just getting my energy from people. Like I've just always just been fascinated by people. So I think it just made sense to me. I was like, you know what, psychology um, in a business sense, what a, what a great marriage. Um, but then as I got into the degree, I, I realized that accounting was so important. And uh, I think every business needs, you need to understand the numbers. Um, you know, I think I was mentioning to you before at school, um, I did well in English and maths and business studies. So I've always had this kind of eclectic mix of, of abilities. Um, and so, yeah, I just think it kind of made sense to me. I'm like, I'm just going to bolt on accounting and it gives me another, you know, another, what do you say, string to my bow or mm. whatever the case may be. So, um, yeah, and I, I, loved, I loved both sides of my degree. Mm. Was there any particular, do you remember any particular instance where you kind of had more of an, that idea that accounting was so important in businesses? Do you remember where that sort of came from or was it just a slow realization while you're going through your degree that mm, maybe I should put some time to take some courses around this? Yeah, no, not really. No, I, I, I wish I could remember where it came from. But, um, you know, a really obvious combination amongst my peers at uni was was doing the org psych with marketing because, you know, it's very much about people and understanding how people behave. You know, it's just the org psychs, people inside the business and marketing's typically people outside the business. Um, funnily enough, I've drifted more towards that marketing. But, um, yeah, I think it was just, you know, there's always been an element of me, I suppose, where I, you know, I like to do things a little bit differently as well. So maybe that was my mm. weird, very geeky way of doing that. Um, yeah. Maybe I was trying to keep my options open a bit as well, like whatever way I wanted to go. But, uh, yeah, it just kind of made sense to me. And, yeah, I, lo- I loved it. Mm. Now, as we spoke about too before we started recording the podcast, your your university decision, the actual decision itself was pretty pivotal as well too in your life and, and started to set you on a trajectory um, very different than what you were um, at a younger age in, in, in grade school. Tell us a little bit more about that. Mm. Um, I remember you said grade school in the interview with Corey and he laughed at you. So yeah, grade take, school, high school. Yeah, I'm going to take yeah. the same opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, so like I, 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 I genuinely mean this. I think in terms of life and situation to be in, I've hit the jackpot. Like I, I'm completely blessed um, to have had the most amazing parents imaginable. Uh, I grew up just in fantastic circumstances. If there was ever anything I needed, um, it, it was there. Uh, I just I couldn't have been luckier throughout my life. And um, but but I got the sense and. And I was an only child, um, had incredibly caring parents, but I'd always lived my life within this, I suppose, this, this comfort zone, this, this familiar set of circumstances with, with my cousins and my aunties and my uncles and living in the same part of Sydney. And you know, I think for eight years straight, I was getting the same trains to and from uh, what was year five and six and then grade school, school <laughs> uh, after that. And so I just got this sense it was like I could feel... I could just feel that there was growth for me by leaving that environment. Um, once again, so lucky to have such supportive parents, but um, they helped me move on campus at university, which, um, you know, I, I just I just 
got a hunch that that was that was a good idea. Uh, one of my cousins had a lot of friends who were living on campus at uni and just said, you know, the partying was amazing and it was just the best way to do uni. Hmm. Um, you know, my cousin said that her biggest regret was not doing that. So I think I just took the advice of people around me and kind of combined that with my gut and obviously the, the fantastic support of my family and I moved on campus at uni and, um, yeah, I didn't tell you this bit. The first six months, I absolutely hated it. Like, <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. Like, just imagine being an only child mm. who, like, can just no one touches their things mm-hmm. um they can their room can look exactly how they want it to um <laughs> compare that to living with 260 people on a floor where like um people would just come into your room and just sit there while you weren't there um you know like you, oh. you might just be in another room but yeah, just kind of like borrowing your stuff and um you know oh mate i forgot my deodorant they just you know they the do and you just i was like losing my mind and <laughs> I just, I was actually really overwhelmed, if truth be told. I, I found it really hard to adjust at first. And um, I had a mate uh, who um, is an American dude called Mikey Graff. And uh, yeah, we're, we're inseparable for that first semester. And he went back to New York. And so there was just no hope for me. I'm like, I've just lost <laughs> my best mate. Um, I don't even want to be here. But yeah, I think something just shifted in that second semester. And I just started seeing how much beautiful energy there was around me and and just the, these fantastic people who, yeah, to be honest, like um, they set these kind of rules when you moved in and one of them was um, check your UAI, you know, your, which in New South Wales was your, your high school exam score and the, the, the rule was check your UAI at the door. And the mm. whole idea is like we don't really care what you've done in your past. Um, you've earned your spot at uni, but we actually just care about the type of person you are. Mm. And um, that really set the tone for the type of place it was. So, you know, people from literally like, you know, 40, 50 countries of the world. Um, you know, that's why I've been to Chile for weddings and <laughs> things like that. You know, I made some tremendous Chilean mates and, you know, I've been all over the world and been able to stay with people. But um, just going from that only child um, and maybe stuck, you know, when I think about it, probably stuck a bit too much inside my own head and not really used to sharing and kind of just being around other people all the time um, to go into that environment where it was such an extreme difference mm at first confronting but yeah it, i think the the social skills it gave me and just the um it just gave me so many gifts a lot of them are really intangible but um i just feel like my overall uni experience i to be honest i probably feel like i got 20 percent of the value um from from the study and 80 percent from the living on campus yeah uh it's it's been it's been a real game changer uh, I'll add I'll in as well too I think my biggest regret of my university degree wasn't living on campus wasn't taking outside of that and I only realize now in retrospect kind of what you said is that I think the biggest gain in value at least in today's day and age depending on what degree you do mind you but it's about being surrounded being able to connect with other people being able to be surrounded be able to push it, push yourself outside your comfort zone and I can't imagine as an 18, 19 year old 17, 18 whatever age you might find yourself there a bigger, more dramatic shift that probably happens in your life at that point, especially after such a long, sustained period of, you know, living with mom and dad and it's all safe. So I, uh, I definitely look back and I think that that's a big missed opportunity, but, um, it's good to obviously you got, you became aware of that early and obviously did that. And, yeah. And yeah. And that. I have one friend in particular and, um, it's been lovely. Like we kind of drifted apart for a few years and, uh, she moved to Brisbane and, and I now happen to live in Brisbane and, um, yeah, she just became a really good mate. And, uh, I remember, you know, I'd like kind of walk past her room at like nine o'clock at night and, um, 
you know, you just kind of pop your head in and say hi, and then all of a sudden it'd be 3 a.m. and there'd probably be like three or four people in there who were doing the same thing and just popping in. But you just have these conversations for like four or five hours, and you're talking about everything and nothing. Yeah. And, um, you know, you probably should have been studying or doing something productive <laughs> yeah. or at least sleeping. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a lot of the time that was centered on partying, but a lot of the time it wasn't. It was just these really great, wholesome conversations where you're understanding how different people think mm. and act and feel. And um, I remember once like uh, that, that same person showed me a quote and I don't know if it is a John Lennon quote. Um, I think, you know, sometimes people get attributed to yeah, things they never say, but yeah. it was uh, something along the lines of time you enjoy wasting is never wasted time. Mm. And uh, I remember just reading that going, yeah, damn, I couldn't agree with that more. And that's a great example. Like, you know, on paper is five hours of conversation about nothing valuable. Maybe not, but in the in the bigger scheme of things, when you you add that up across multiple people and you know asking mm. good questions and listening, yeah, of course it, it has a huge payoff. Yeah, and uh, I think that was a lot of what the payoff for me of living on campus was. Mm. Phenomenal skill set, yeah. Now uh, from there, you took a transition into to uh, the banking industry as well too, didn't you? Sort of took a graduate program. I think as we spoke about, that was just sort of you came to the end of your degree and it was time to go. And, Take us a bit more through that. Like, what was that first step into your into the big world? Yeah, look, I um I found that step really hard, and I think that's part of it is like that same adjustment process to get used to this unfamiliar situation of having two hundred and sixty people around you. Um, equally difficult to have a situation where you don't have two hundred and sixty people Absolutely. around you. Um, and also, you know, you, there's a bit of a a hierarchy, you know, you enter the the uni as a first year and you're kind of the bottom of the pecking order. Then in the second year, you traditionally um, vote to be on, uh, you, you know, you kind of nominate yourself to be on committees. I was a treasurer of the association. And then in kind of your third, and I did four years there, which is probably a, a little more than average. Um, but then you, you start getting jobs. So they have like paid roles within the, the, the college. So, you know, you're kind of getting, a, it's, mm. you know, it's like when you go through, grade school and uh yeah you hit the top of the tree and then all of a sudden you're bottom of the tree yeah. it, was, it was a little bit of that combined with the fact that there wasn't as much constant stimulation around me as there was and uh you know i remember that that whole you know five days on two days off five days on two days <laughs> off um really really tough to adjust to but i think too probably more, more pointing to your question just the um I, I don't really know why i applied for a job in a bank um so like Literally, those grad programs, and they're really hard to get into. So I think that kind of scarcity of these roles also made them a little bit attractive mm. that, you know, that they had so many people applying, but they only had so many positions. But it just seemed to be the thing to do. Um, I don't think I gave it enough thought, really. Um, I don't regret any any of it for a second. I but was just going to ask, if you could go back, would you have changed it? No. I I don't know. I, I, I heard Seth Godin ask that on the Tim Ferriss podcast, like, what would he change about his life? And he's like, Absolutely nothing because everything that's happened to me has led to this point. Mm, for a and, reason. Yeah, exactly. And I agree with that. So um, I don't regret it and I, I learned a lot of lessons. But I think my journey into banking was like I had to I had to work really hard to, to get through the application process. They're, they're pretty stringent. Um, but then once I got there, I, I, I met some fantastic people. Um, you know, being part of a big grad co- cohort, it was kind of like, you know, an evolved version of living <laughs> on campus where you're seeing all these people and you have Friday night drinks and stuff. But uh, yeah, I just don't think the big banking world was necessarily for me. Um, I think I've always, I've always liked things that are kind of small and underdoggy, <laughs> if that makes sense. Like I, I like the 
the people who are not expected to be successful and helping them be successful. Do you know where that would have come from? Like, was that just any particular theme or idea where that came from? I don't know. I think it might, my dad, and he wouldn't mind me saying this, there's almost a defiance mentality with him where um, I remember him telling this story about this table that he wanted to build. And um, my mum, I think one of her sisters, were laughing at him saying, oh, you'd never be able to build that. Hmm. And he's like, he's quoted, I'll show you bastards. Um, but that's a country country Aussie man. So, yeah, uh, yeah very typical. <laughs> but, um, and he built the table. And it probably took him 20 times longer than it should have. And, you know, he probably invested way too much time to prove <laughs> a point that probably fell on deaf ears. But um, I think... I think my, I think there's a little bit of that. Like I, I like the idea of the underdog defying the odds. Mm. Um, but I also think something that my parents have definitely given me is an appreciation of what's amazing about things. Mm. My parents, um, well, I think the three of us together have this in, insane level of optimism, um, which can sometimes you know not be a great thing. But I think for the most part is is just an amazing thing mm. where you always see the best in things. You always see the best in situations. You always expect the best out of people. And uh, I think that's, you know, attached to that is being able to see the potential in things and seeing what is good about something. And, you know, when I look at what I do now, it's about like looking at businesses and seeing what that potential is and then helping them you know, crystallize it, so mm. to speak. So, yeah, I think there was a little bit of that. And I, I felt, I feel like too that, I like feeling instrumental in the process. I like knowing that what I'm doing is contributing to something and, and seeing the output of that. You just didn't have that working for such a big company as such a small. Yeah, and and that, I don't necessarily think that's the case for everyone, but mm. definitely in the role I was in, I met some great people, had some great experiences, and it really helped me with the next step. Just mm. that experience um, was fantastic. But yeah, I just don't think it was the right thing for me at that time. Yeah. So what was that next step? Because you you took. Obviously, for people I know you quite well, probably not the most obvious step, but um, what was that next step for yourself after that? I think I was guilty again of just going down a, um, I wouldn't simplify it by saying the path expected of me by others, but I don't know, there's almost just this like, I don't know, societal programming of what <laughs> like the, the safe logical option yeah. was. Um, I'd identified at the end of my grad program that I wanted to go into financial planning um, funnily enough, and I only just realized this now, is someone my dad shared an office with again. Uh, <laughs> I, I feel like I should, um, yeah, I should like try and get dad to share an office with like Tim Ferriss or something. Yeah. I could I mean... become like him. <laughs> yeah. Cool. yeah I certainly could do with the fitness of Tim Ferriss. That's, that's, that's the, the bit I'm lagging. Um, so he was sharing the office with a financial planner. And again, I was kind of thinking, well, I've got the accounting background and it's something I like and I'm good at. And then there's the psychological thing because you are helping people. And I think that's what was missing for me at Westpac um, was that I just didn't see how what I was doing was helping people. So after the grad program, I actually asked to be moved over into the financial advice area, which was which was kind of like a, a bit of a, um, no one had really done that before. So mm. I, I had to like, you know, talk to a lot of people and move a few mountains to make that happen. But I, I made that happen. Um, but then it, it, it became kind of a similar thing where I was like, I'm, I'm in a really big financial planning business here, you know, attached to branches and they do what they do. But I just wanted to do it uh, in a more, I don't know, personal way and in a way that I felt like a small business would be able to to deliver it differently to a bank. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so, yeah, I, I decided that I was going to leave. Um, 
and I think I, I, I mentioned to you before that it just so happened that you know, there was some really scary times in the global economy then and my role got made redundant. So it was, it's actually a really nice piece of luck because I was, I was about to push the button on my resignation and, and I, I happened to be made redundant. Um, and I was lucky enough to get a job within probably one to two weeks after that all went down. Um, and then one to two weeks after that, the GFC hit. And I'm, I'm almost certain that had the GFC hit before I signed that contract. That contract may never have been there, mm. but uh, you know, I think there was a little bit of fear out there in the in the world about jobs in financial services. So I think I kind of latched onto that a bit. And you know, if I had my time again, I probably would have backed myself a bit more. Mm. Probably also would have given myself a bit more time to just all right. You you've got you know, it wasn't a huge amount of money, but you got a little bit of money through this redundancy. Um, so you've got time. You bought yourself a bit of time. Why don't you just really think about what you want to do next? Like you kind of tried a few things, and they they haven't grabbed you and, and made you excited. So maybe just go on a bit of a journey to work out what that is. Mm. Um, but I didn't. And again, zero regrets. But uh, yeah, went into um, a financial advice company and I was in a role called power planning, which if anyone who's listening has been a power planner, it's it's a tough gig. You, you don't really get to see the clients. You, you're pretty much just sitting at the back of the office writing financial plans. Um, financial plans on paper sound like something that people want, but Financial advisors hate them. They're just full of red tape and, and you know, legislation and compliance. And they're basically legal documents to mm. keep the regulators happy as opposed to things that bring joy to clients. And that's just all the stuff that my understanding is that's all like document stuff. You're going to, if the person's buying certain financial products, there's all this sort of compliancy paperwork and you're really just filling out that compliancy paperwork so the person can get their insurance or their, you know, their investment or whatever it is. So you do the unsexy um, unsexy side of all the paperwork and stuff like that. Right? Yeah, that's it. And and a lot of it's born on uh, limiting legal risk and kind of protecting the advisor as opposed to <laughs> you know necessarily adding heaps of value. I think yeah. you know financial advisors add a tremendous amount of value, particularly good ones, to their clients. But um, yeah, I don't think the the financial plan itself is where that value is coming mm-hmm. from. Um, it's more just you know what happens around it. But uh, but you know by the same token. Um, you're playing an important part in the process and, uh, you know, you are indirectly helping clients. But I think that was the thing is that you're not seeing the result of that and you're not necessarily attached to the clients. So, yeah, it, it felt a little bit uh, a little bit soul-destroying at times. And, you know, I think the, the, real, the real value I got out of that experience um, was, you know, I hit some points when I was paraplane where I was really miserable. And, you know, people talk about a quarter-life crisis. I, <laughs> I definitely had that sense of, you know what, like I did, I did everything until this point that I was told to do. I worked really hard at high school. I worked way too hard at high school. Like I, I actually didn't really enjoy my life outside of school because I didn't have one. Mm. Um, everything was about getting good grades and I, I worked myself to the bone. And I got a great mark and that helped me get into the uni course I wanted to. And, you know, at uni, I, I definitely swung the pendulum more towards the fun than the study, but I still got good grades and I still got through. But I kind of just done everything I needed to do along the way. And so to me, I was like, well, I've put in the hard work. Doesn't that now mean I get the fulfilling yeah. job and heaps of money and we live happily ever after? Um, and that, that, that was a huge adjustment for me to realize, no, and now's when you start creating your destiny. It doesn't just happen for yeah. you. And um, so again, you know, going back to the power planning, like, I learned so much about what I didn't want to do and what I, you know, what was lacking in my life. And, you know, I was like, well, if this is making me feel this way, therefore I need to find 
you know, opportunities and roles where this isn't, this, this is what's not happening mm. because these are the things that are, you know, it, it was affecting my happiness, um, but it was also affecting my, my confidence as well because I wasn't using my skills and I wasn't adding value in the ways I feel like I best add value. Um, and so I, I definitely feel like there was a period there where I started to feel like I was losing a bit of my, my self-esteem, which um, was when it got into dangerous territory when I went, I've got to, I've got to reverse this somehow. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting too. I know we spoke about this obviously before over, over uh, previous to this, but um, one of my big lessons as of late is, is realizing that the, the learning comes out of the, 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 the crappy days just as much as it comes out of the good days. And so you don't have to wait till it's a, it's a sunny, perfect opportunity and everything's aligned and you're getting those perfect opportunities. You, sometimes the, the learning opportunities are just in the crappy, rainy day and there's so much to learn there as well too and not going, and to a certain extent for everybody's journey that you, you have to sort of balance the two and you have to sort of decide when you've had enough of maybe the dark and rainy days. But at the same time, just because it's dark and rainy doesn't mean there isn't so much to learn in that. And I think that for me has been a big mentality shift instead of necessarily chasing the green, the greener grass to kind of go, no, I'm just going to sit here and I just want to learn a little bit from this. Again, everybody's, I know, and there's a whole conversation out there about when is enough, but just to recognize that if it's a little bit dark and dreary, that's okay. There's something still there to be learned. So sit there and learn it. Absolutely. Yeah, it's so true. Um, and it, it's a hard one because, yeah, uh, you know, I think, you know, um, looking looking to the looking at the situation we're in and how that might unfold in the future is often incredibly difficult to predict. Mm. But when you look backwards, you can always have this perfect, you know, 2020 yeah. vision in hindsight where you can go, oh, that's why that happened. Or, you know, wasn't that great that that happened? You don't necessarily see that in the moment. Um, but yeah, Seth Godin wrote a little book on this called The Dip. Uh, I'd strongly suggest anyone who's listening read this book because I think we all have these situations in our life. And the idea of the dip is, you know, that there's a level of crap and difficulty and, and um, you know, personal challenge involved in getting to any great outcome. And the idea of the dip is you just got to get through the dip and then out the end of it, you kind of emerge into the valley. Um, but the problem is, is when you think something's a dip, but actually it's a dead end <laughs> and you're just going to get to a point where you don't progress past the dip. So yeah, I think, you know, it's probably a little bit of gray hair and wisdom that, that helps you <laughs> work this one out. But, um, yeah, the challenge is I think sometimes we've learned the lesson that, um, the dip has taught us, but we stick around there and just have to keep learning it over and over again. And yeah. it's just about going, you know what, I've learned the lesson now. Yeah. I think I need to keep moving. Time to go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now for yourself, now you took you took quite a dramatic shift, obviously after being a paraplanner as well too. I think, was it the four months, four weeks of your vacation is when that happened? Or was that happened before? I can't remember. Yeah, um, it was, yeah, it was just around the time I was, I was paraplanning. I was just getting to that point. I was like, no, nah, that this is, this, this isn't Michael back. Like I got, I got to do something else here. And, um, you know, I, I was fortunate in that I worked in a company where there was just some really good people. Uh, and it was, it was a small business that had grown and grown and grown. It was starting to become a big business, but it still had a lot of small business values. And I think, you know, the, the, the way people interacted with each other wasn't overly formal. So, you know, I was in a good environment um, and I felt like there was a lot of opportunities there to add some value. But yeah, I just couldn't quite piece it together. And I, I don't feel like I, I, I feel like I had all, inside me. I thought I had all this value, but no one had seen it. Mm-hmm. And so you know, it was, there was a bit of a leap of faith involved to extract that. Um, but what I decided to do was, look, I'm just going to, you know, I think we've probably all had this experience at some point. I'm going to go overseas and I'm just going to like 
you know, just do some really deep thinking and work out what I'm doing next. You know, apparently there's something magical in the northern <laughs> hemisphere that's not in the southern hemisphere that helps people have these epiphanies. And vice versa, yeah. yeah exactly, yeah, yeah, it's spot on. <laughs> and um, so I went to Europe with a bunch of mates and um, you can imagine, like, there wasn't much epiphany time. <laughs> it was all just having fun and, you know, going to silly festivals in Spain and, yeah, we, we had a ball. But um, I, I distinctly remember waking up the, the day we were flying out and I just felt this, this like just this really sinking feeling in my stomach. Um, I, I felt it was, part of that was the holidays over. Um, we all get that one. But the other part of it was like you had one job to do this month, mate, and you haven't done it. And um, I was just disappointed. I was disappointed that I'd, I'd, something was so important to me and yet I hadn't prioritized it. Um, and then we're at Heathrow Airport and I was, I was walking through the, uh, the main terminal to our gate with a couple of mates. And I remember just looking over at this, um, at this like news agent and there was just this book out the front and it, it just said, screw work, let's play. And it just grabbed me. Um, and, you know, so when I tell the story, it almost sounds like there was this, you know, spotlight on the book and not, you know, everything else in the airport was dark. But it almost felt like that at that moment. Like I just looked at this book and I went, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> and I grabbed it and I read the back cover. And I just had this, like, I had this feeling that something was about to change. It mm-hmm. was just the way the back cover was written and just the words that we used and basically the type of person it was trying to appeal to was me. Mm. Um, and I, I, I bought it. Um, I was walking to the gate and I just started flicking through the pages and, and like, you know, without a word of a lie, my heart started racing because I could just feel the power in this book and that it was almost like, you know, the universe had sent this book to me <laughs> that day to, yeah, to, to give me something to do on the, on that 24 hour horrible flight home, uh, to basically just help solve my problem. And, uh, it, it really did. So I, I finished the book. Um, I just couldn't have been more excited to start kind of just living life the way that the whole premise of the book is that we place this pressure on ourselves to have this big long-term plan and it's all mapped out and you, you know, just one step leads to the other and just happily ever after. And that, as I just said before, like that, that just hadn't happened to me and I realized I needed to be a, a more active rather than passive participant in that process. Mm. And so that the whole idea was, look, start this process you know i've heard it by these authors called defrosting where it's like you just kind of break the shackles of what you're doing and actually just reconnect to what you love doing and um i never actually told my mates this um but i i basically had a, had a couple of beers with some mates that weekend and i just came up with an idea i was like look why don't we just do something fun like a little project let's record some youtube videos <laughs> and we'll just go out to these like weird little like festivals and um, you know, weird like sci-fi conventions, but mm. not big commercial ones, like tiny little ones in community halls. Uh, we went to a doll bearing craft fair. We went to a rockabilly festival. We went to a <laughs> tattoo festival. Just Let's just go find these weird and wacky and yeah. wonderful little pockets of Sydney and kind of celebrate them in a funny way and record them and see if people find them funny. And so we did that and we, we got like media passes for one of them, which was really wow. cool. Like, yeah, I was like, that was, um, it was amazing. And, uh, you know, just when you say to them, hey, here's our website and we got like free business cards off, uh, <laughs> what's that, I uh, can't remember the name of it, but yeah, where you get all the cheap stationery yeah. online. And, 
and yeah, we just basically just kind of bootlegged the whole thing, um, or bootstrapped, sorry, I should say. Um, yeah, we, we didn't copy anything. All good. Um, we might have copied a little bit of music in some of the YouTube videos, I think. But, uh, but yeah, and we just went out there and started recording videos, and we just had fun. And we put it out online, and it didn't get like, I think one of the videos had a couple of thousand views, but nothing remarkable happened. But it just kind of gave me this zest for life, and this, you know, the whole idea of Screwwork Let's Play is to you know, kind of play like a child. You know, when you're a kid, you play um, in a sandpit, not because you're going, how's this sandpit going to contribute to <laughs> yeah. this and How am I developing that skills that yeah. are going to help me, like, network better or build my, you know, six, you know seven-figure yeah, exactly. empire? <laughs> I love that. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, uh, you know, a, a meditator or a mindfulness expert would say, well, this is about being, you know, detached from an outcome and just doing something for the pure joy. But really... It is. It's just like playing like children do because their their guts telling them to do it, and that's what we did. And uh, you know, they called it a play project, but that was um that was a really significant moment for me because a couple of things happened. So I did it for the joy, and I got a lot of that joy, and so it gave me a bit more mojo, gave me a bit more pep in my step, and just kind of put this nicer filter on work where it was like, yeah, I'm going to work, but I've got some other cool stuff happening, mm. you know. Um, and then, but the other thing was, um, I did get an outcome out of it, which was. I started developing these skills. Like I had to learn how to build a website for this venture. Um, one of my mates was editing videos for it. He really enjoyed doing that. But I learned a lot through that process. I had to work out how to get the equipment happening. And I kind of just developed like a little bit of digital marketing now. Mm. Um, nothing too crazy, but setting up a Facebook page and all these things which are obvious now, but back then were kind of foreign and new. And um, it was kind of, you know, that... Uh, one of my all-time favorite videos is the Steve Jobs Stanford speech where he's talking about, you know, it's impossible to join the dots looking forwards, but it's always possible to join them looking back. Mm. So, you know, his, his message is very much similar to this screw work, let's play stuff about just, just doing what you love. His example is the calligraphy class, which oh, he did. Oh, I love this, yeah. Yeah, and uh, he didn't do it because calligraphy was the hot boom industry which he wanted to place himself in. Um, he did it because he loved beautiful fonts and that's why the Macintosh computer had gorgeous fonts and, you know, the rest of the world caught up, you know, so he could never have predicted that. Mm. But when you look back, it's kind of obvious. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I, I I didn't do it for that reason, but kind of just joining those dots now, I go, well, actually, you know, I was in this position where there was a business that was looking to grow. Um, they They had quite a poor digital presence and... Um, a lot of the kind of marketing and systems in the business just weren't there. So I kind of just combined a few of my passions and, mm. and some of my skills and painted a picture for them where I was like, well, why don't I help you with this? And, you know, I was so fortunate that they decided to give me a chance and they they basically let me transition out of that paraplaning role and into a full-time digital marketing role, mm. uh, which was just, yeah, just an amazing change of scenery for me. Yeah, I, I absolutely love this story. And, and I, I find that the more I've sort of, even through the podcasting and sort of having my play project, I guess, if you will, become more attuned to how many people have these sort of great examples of it. Um, there's another guy I want to get on the podcast as well, too. He's got an incredible story, a uh, guy I sort of kind of grew up with and uh, back in my uni days, where him and mates were just doing videography. It was just for fun. They were just 
they love sports. They were just taking a camera out, goofing around, and now they've turned it into an amazing venture. Amazing venture. They absolutely love their jobs. They they can't believe how awesome I spoke with them. They can't believe you get paid to do this. They used to do this back in the day for free. Now people pay them. Who wouldn't want to do that? Whatever it might be kind of thing. But just that ability to learn and develop the skill sets and all those sorts of things, you don't realize you're you know, getting better at it. You're just doing it because you enjoy it. And look where it can get you. Even if you can't roll it into a, a venture or a, a job, even just for the pure pleasure of play. Absolutely. Yeah, we were talking about this before. Like I, I, I went all businessy on you and I was like, you know, <laughs> you know, have you got plans to monetize the podcast? And, you know, the conclusion was it'd be lovely, but you don't need it to be monetized because you're getting enough reward, you know, intrinsically mm. from it. And, you know, I think as human beings, like, you know, it's, it's, you know, and probably in my, you know, younger days, I had a more narrow-minded view of the world of, well, this is the type of person I am, so this is what I should be doing as a career. But, you know, ultimately where, you know, I could simplify and say we're a little bit of A, B, C, D, and E, but, you know, in, in reality, there, there's not enough letters in the alphabet <laughs> to capture all of our beautiful gifts and strengths and the things that, that make us come alive. Um, but we've never had a better opportunity than we do today to find ways to combine those things. And, uh, and it's ever been easier too. Oh, it's absolutely yeah. yeah. It's just it's also possible. Yeah. And uh, yeah. you know it's it's amazing when you start seeing those opportunities to join those dots. Um, mm. But you don't know what you know. You might only know what A and B are, but you don't know what the rest of the letters of the alphabet yeah. are if you don't get out there and just explore the things that you love. And you know that was the thing with the play project. Is that I, I actually enrolled in a course to to launch this play project after I read the book. And some of the people were getting really disheartened because their play project hadn't been as fun as they expected and kind of had put this pressure on themselves that <laughs> this was going to be yeah. the, the ticket out of their hellhole. Yeah. Um, but, you know, as they said, well, you're just one step closer to working out what, what are those other letters of your alphabet um, because you're ruling something out. That's, that's an equally big step forward. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's all, it's all good. Absolutely. Now, so you did this digital marketing, starting to create content, refining it, developing it, practicing it, getting better at it. But you're you took quite a dramatic shift again shortly after that, didn't you? Yeah. So I, I can't recall how long, but I I think I was probably in that role for probably just over twelve months, maybe twelve to eighteen months. Uh, got some really cool things off the ground, and I think it's like anything. Like I really invested in um, my education, so. It wasn't just at work, like I was spending my nights and weekends, like really trying to trying to get my head around all this stuff. It, you know, everyone, you know, I I still think there's a lot of people really stabbing in the dark with digital, and that's great. I mean, you know, that that exploration is mm. is important, and I think it's you know, in any relatively new industry, there's an element of people, you know, being it's like the guitar teacher who's one or two lessons ahead of their student. <laughs> um, but back then, it was just you know, it was like the wild west. People were just trying things and seeing what sticks, and there wasn't much conventional wisdom but there was a little bit and it was starting to emerge and so I was grabbing onto that as much as possible um, we're trying some things and they were working um, I tried some other things and they didn't really work so well and you know I was fortunate to have some some great advisors at PSK who were happy to just be my test dummies so you know putting cameras in front of them trying different types mm-hmm. of videos and yeah you know, we did some really cool things it was it was really good fun um, but you know I, I started to get the sense that I'd, I'd been on this big you know, learning curve and I, I, you know, could have executed on a few projects, but I could just see that for me to continue in that role at that place, there was going to need to be um, a, another big kind of wave of innovation. And I think they were just kind of happy with where they're at. I mean, I, I, I think there was 35 advisors there and um, there was two of us in the marketing team and um, 
we got all of them with LinkedIn profiles, which back in 2011 was like crazy <laughs> talk. Yeah, that's it. Um, and so we've done some really cool things, but I think they, they were kind of happy with that. They're like, you know what, we're, we're just where we want to be now and we don't all want to be YouTube stars. So we're, kinda, we're, we're happy. <laughs> yeah. We're happy with what's happened. So it's actually a really lovely um, departure where, you know, I, it, it just so happened at the time my father had to have some spinal surgery um, and he needed someone to kind of just look after his business for a few weeks and I, was, I, I just realized that, you know, that the chapter was ending at PSK and I just went, you know what, I'm just going to go help my dad um, for a couple of months and just help him keep things moving. Kind of felt a little bit mafia, like taking taking orders from the bedside. You know, <laughs> you know like, tell me, tell me what I'll do your bidding for you. Uh, but yeah, so did that. And then um, it was around that same time that I met a bloke up in Brisbane by the name of Baz who um, had... So I saw him present at a, at a conference and he was talking about financial advice, but particularly how he, in his own financial advice practice, had used digital marketing to, to, um, to ramp things up. And it was just, one of, it was just the, the first moment where I'd heard someone speak that I was like, they get what this whole digital social media thing means for service-based professionals. So for people who are selling a relationship. And was it something at the time where you kind of felt that or was it just you, you felt that there was had to be something different, bigger, better or whatever and he kind of just came and, and, and delivered that? Yeah, I think I was just using my gut a lot in some ways but I'd also seen what hadn't worked. So there was almost this like, you know, missing piece of the jigsaw puzzle where I'm like, well, all of this isn't the shape of that piece. So what, how does that look? Mm. And, and he just really helped paint that picture for me and his whole mentality and you know, it's funny like you look now and it seems so obvious but honestly in 2012 like no one was thinking like this um you know and the best financial advisors have always known it's not about the product and it's not about what they do it's about the relationship mm-hmm. um, but no one had really bridged that gap between the relationship being so important and then using digital media and social media to leverage the relationship through video, through helping people get to know who you are and kind of resonance, so to speak. Uh, and Baz just painted that picture so beautifully and, you know, had had done it successfully in his own financial advice practice that it's kind of had this moment where I went, this is the guy who's now going to change financial advice. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this guy's ideas are so powerful that if advisors start doing them, it would send a wave through the industry. And, you know, fast forwarding a few years, that, that's what happened. Um, but I suppose in the, in the meantime, I'd reached out to Baz and said, look, mate, um, and this was before I'd left PSK. I was just like, look, I, I, um, I love what you're doing. I I think it's, uh, I think you're right on the money. I could tell you're a startup, so you probably don't have a lot of money, but, um, I'm happy to help you for free. So if you need time, you know, I've got my weeknights, I've got my weekends, just start sending me stuff. Hmm. We did that. Um, I left PSK you know, around the time I just knew that it was, um, that, you know, it was time to go. And uh, there was no guarantees. There, there was no there was no job. There was no offer or anything. It was just this situation where I was like, I know I'm going to do something different. Hmm. This may be one of the options, but it may not be. Um, but I'm just going to make the right decision for the right reason here. And uh, So finally you kind of got into that. Now you're starting to think about the roles instead of just kind of, going into it but trying to be a little bit more in your head about I'm doing this because of this kind of thing yeah absolutely yeah it's probably a great example of just going you know what I'm just going to listen to myself and just trust that if I keep doing the right things the right things will keep happening mm. and uh, and yeah it just turns out that he basically needed a bit of help 
And you know, I was at a, at a pretty unencumbered time in my life in Sydney. And he said, "Look, I, I can't give you, um, I can't give you much money, but what I can give you is, yeah, a few months up in Brisbane. I've got a granny flat on my property. Um, you can live there for a few months. We've got, I've got a conference I want to organise, and I need some help getting it off the ground. There might be a business out the back of it. There may not. I don't know, but let's just give it our best shot." So that's what I did. I moved up to Brisbane temporarily. I drove my car. I filled it with. Yeah, quite a few things, but certainly not everything. In fact, I still had a rental property in Sydney that I was subletting to a mate because I, I wasn't wasn't sure what where my future was. Mm. Um, I drove my car up to Brisbane. I haven't driven it back since. It's still up there. <laughs> I, uh, it's been used by my uh, my fiance's siblings at the moment, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it still hasn't it hasn't been south of the border since. So, what in that? I suppose if you going back and seeing that you resonated with this guy. What made you, does anything stand out that made you want to take that opportunity or was it just something else and you felt to start to align? Like what was kind of that, why that opportunity? Why not just saying maybe there's got to be something now that I've got a better idea, stay local or something like that. I think I just started to form this like positive association between adventure and reward. Mm. So, you know, when I think of my early life that I probably didn't, I was probably very risk averse as a kid and I didn't really leave my comfort zone. I mean, you've always got a little bit of peer pressure where, you know, your mates are climbing the tree so you kind of feel like you've got to do it. But I don't think I really backed myself to just leave my comfort zone enough um, in my younger years. I, I I really feel like school was just this formula and once I cracked the code, I kind of just got the result I wanted. But it wasn't, you know, it, it was through a lot of hard work, but a lot of it was you know, a bit of people pleasing and just working out <laughs> how to get teachers on side and all those things as mm. well. But, you know, I, I'd had had some, you know, going to university, great adventure, enormous payoff. Um, you know, doing my, my play project with my mates, great adventure, enormous payoff. Mm. Um, and so I just think I started to realize that, you know, it's, it's like going back to the story about the sandboarding, um, that it was like falling over wasn't that, you know, it wasn't that big a deal. And so for me, if I, you know, drove back to Sydney straight after the conference because it was a flop, um, there'd be no tail between my legs. There'd be no shame. It's just kind of like, wasn't that a great experience? And that will certainly contribute to the next step. Mm. And, um, you know, it just so happened that the conference was not a flop. It was a, an outstanding success. And so what was, so if you like to say, so what was the role that you were given then in terms of the relation to the conference? Um, it's like, classic startup stuff so um <laughs> basically anything and everything <laughs> yeah, okay. uh, yeah it's three months i can't pay much i just need help just doing everything kind of thing that's it i was writing press releases for the media i was meeting with potential sponsors of the conference um i was helping sell tickets i was um building an email series that was kind of building a little bit of hype before the conference um we were having a meeting one day and trying to work out who was going to be MC and then everyone looked at me and so I was <laughs> then the MC of the conference. Uh, it was just literally one of those things where it was like there was um, Baz and his wife. Uh, we had um, a, a friend of his from a previous business and then a guy he'd met on LinkedIn and we were all just <laughs> in one room in the the you know the, the out of northern northern suburbs of Brisbane trying to trying to build an event that was going to change the world. Mm. So when you were, I'm really curious as well too, and this is definitely something I'm starting to explore more through these, through these interviews then, that we have you going from pair planner, starting to do a little bit of digital and social media, and now you're selling tickets, emceeing, 
writing press releases. Where did you get that skill set from? Like, how did you how did you put a press release together? I mean, how does one do that without necessarily having ever done that in the past for especially the startup where it's kind of make or break? Really good question. Um, a lot of Googling. <laughs> uh, yeah. A lot of, a lot of um, you know, one of my clients the other day said to me, um, he feels like the work I do is instinctive. And that's a bit of a scary word as well because sometimes it, it can come across as having uh, not much method to your madness and, <laughs> you know, um, you know, instinctive people's businesses don't really operate if they're sick, you know what I mean? Mm. Um, but, yeah, I think I'm quite instinctive. So I think sometimes I just – I just – have a crack and see what happens and if it's 70 or 80 percent of the way they're cool next time i'll just find that extra 20 percent and we'll be there um that's something i've definitely got better at like i used to be a massive perfectionist and to be honest I, if i wasn't in that frame of mind of this is an adventure and you know mm. we're, we're all just having a crack i probably i don't think i would have been able to do the things i did then earlier um, a lot of it was probably around trust and faith you know the team just going you know we trust that you can do this and you know, I think that was a really big part of my story at the social advisor was that um, there was a lot of people around me who had a, a tremendous amount of trust in me and that helped me see potential in myself that I'd never seen before. And the social advisor is the name of the business. That, that was the name of the business. Great. Yeah, that's exactly right. So yeah, there was like, uh, there was tremendous, um, there were so many opportunities where I was like, I'll never be able to do that. Um, hmm. And then I found a way to do it. And that was because of the faith that, that people around me had. I love that. Have a crack at it. Just have a go. That's, uh, I know, obviously, being a Canadian in Australia, that was, for me, one of the earliest things that really stood out to me being here is the, the different mentality of, of have a crack at it. Just have a go at it. I don't, I don't really quite know. I've got an idea. Like, I'll just have a crack at it. And that, I found that tremendously refreshing and not to, not to project in terms of that's just Canadians and, or that's how we go through. But definitely, I don't think that's really how I was raised or how, um, how I was the, the mentality I was kind of brought up. And it's like, no, there's a plan. You, you get the plan, you research it, not just like have a crack at it. I think that's what you do. Have a crack. I love that about Australia. I love that mentality. Yeah. And I think a lot of it, like in a business, it's cultural too, that if, uh, you know, if you can kind of destigmatize failure and actually you can see from the top down, people are just having a crack and trying things. It, it makes the culture more around experimentation rather than perfection. Yeah. Um, and that was a very important part. You know, that, that early period at the social advisor, a lot of it was around. Um, we're just, we're learning this as we go. So, you know, be curious and just try things out. Uh, but, you know, it's funny and I, no, this is probably more typical, not of those first couple of months where we just had no idea what this thing was going to be. But certainly in the months after that, when, you know, we, we had clients and we had online educational platforms and writing content. Was when you're, you essentially were given a role at that point, a three-month contract, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's right. So, yeah, um, once once the conference was very successful and we, we had a business off the back of it in terms of clients, I was then given the role of being like the you know, one of the key conduits for the clients. Um, and you know, that, that really just evolved into a coaching role. Um, but still, you know, typical startup, I, I'd be doing that. Um, but then I'd also be writing content. I'd be filming videos for educational platforms, um, and then trying to sign up sponsorship for the next advisor. It's like my role was always very varied, um, you know, hiring, firing, that sort of thing as well. So, so much diversity. And I love that about small business and startups too, is that, you know, when I say, you know, that I love adventure, like mm. every day in a small business is an adventure because there's just, you don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, then all of a sudden some disaster happens and there's a little bit of excitement around that too, of, you know, just trying to figure out how to solve the problem. So, uh, but yeah, I, I just remember though, like I, 
when I was a kid, I wanted to be an author. Um, I used to love writing poetry. I used to just love writing stories. Um, I remember as a kid, like my holiday journals, dad would sneak them out of my bedroom and take them into the office. And there was people photocopying them because they were just so weird and kind of just, you know, it was like from the mouths of babe stuff, you know, like how funny <laughs> is this? And I suppose I became like a, a, a meme in, in, the, in the Commonwealth <laughs> Bank, so to speak. But, uh, you know, just uh, so, yeah, I loved writing. And through the school system and certainly through power planning, I started detesting it. Like I, mm. I had this, I had this real negative association with writing where it was like the thing I hated the most. Put me in like a 20 hour exam, which is multiple choice, bring it on, but make me do an assignment for two hours. And it was like pulling teeth. I'm really creative. I'm really curious as well too, with this idea of creativity, because you, you go into a role which probably didn't really stimulate or drive creativity being a pair planner. Had you, did you view yourself as a creative person from a, from a broader sense? No, not at all. No, I, I think I've always thought, thought of myself as quite like a mathematical, um, black and white type of person, but mm. certainly the last few years I'd say that's changed, but you know, I, I firmly believe that everyone is creative in their own way. It's just, you know, it's about that, that, that playfulness to find mm. where your creativity is. So I know some people who can't draw, can't paint, but their, their ability to put puns together and wordplay is like <laughs> neck level. And, uh, oh. it's like, it, <laughs> it, it is though. Like, and so everyone's creative in their own ways. I mean, there's some criminals who are creative in the way that they can fleece money off people. Now yeah. that, that's a, that's a horrible use of creativity, <laughs> but you know, it's like that they're, I think everyone has that creativity in them. They've just got to find it. So how would you sort of define creativity then if it's not painting, drawing or whatever? Is there some sort of different definition you'd want to, your definition you give it? I think it's just bringing what you have to create something out of nothing. Mm. Um, and creating something out of nothing can also be improving something that is there and adding something else to it that wasn't there before you were involved with it. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes that's, that can be solo. Sometimes that can be collectively. Um, but you know, there's that beautiful moment in creativity where you see something and, you know, particularly in a group, you can't see necessarily who did what bit, but there's just this thing that emerges out of everyone's input. Mm. Um, and then the most rewarding moments as a coach where, you know, you're working with a business and an idea comes up and there's not one person in that room who goes, oh, that was my idea. I'm glad I, I got the rest of the group, you know, to my way of thinking. <laughs> yeah. You literally had this moment where you go, that, that has all of our signature on it. Mm. Um, and it, that's a beautiful moment. You know, that's, that's true creativity. But, you know, something emerges out of that room that wasn't there before you walked in. Yeah. This is something that's been a real, a real thought journey I've been going on. I think I spoke about this in an earlier, earlier um, interview that I've never... I've never really identified myself as being creative. If anybody's seen my handwriting, it looks like somebody's having some sort of like medical emergency <laughs> with a pen in their hand, basically. So um, I've never, and even going through grade school, high school, numerical, some sort of, you know, younger, younger schools going through, I, I couldn't paint. I had awful handwriting. I never really identified as really being, I never really told as creative, really. And I never really liked those things. I did so bad in them. But as I've gotten older, I've come to view creativity as processes and systems and all that sort of thing. 
and be able to create things that weren't there beforehand. And like we were, we were speaking about beforehand, I, I had asked you, um, we were discussing elements of the podcast and writing the intro, the bio intros is something where I kind of get these sort of like flashbacks of like, this is creative writing and I'm not good at this, but it's, 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 it's really interesting. This idea of creativity, I think is a lot broader. And I know a lot of people who yeah, probably don't identify as creative, but it's such a broader element than just the, the, the paintbrush or, you know, Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, you know, there's a, a little business venture I'm looking to start with a friend at the moment. And um, the, the reason I approached him to start it is he's just insanely great at looking at something and going, well, here's how it should be structured. And here's how step one would lead to two to three to four to five. Mm. And he's also got an amazing ability to go, here's the bit where we could outsource that to someone else and here's where we could add that bit. Now, that, that's, a, that's a level of creativity to see a system as it should be functioning and then take it from where it is now to become that system. Um, that's, not, that's not my skill set. That's not the creativity I bring to a situation. Um, so, yet yeah, he's the guy who, when he always says to me that he needs my creativity to help him in his <laughs> business and he's always the one where when he writes a blog, he's like, I, I just can't. Um, I just can't think of a headline. I'm just never good at coming up with headlines. So, you know, it's essentially like we're all creative, but it's about just finding people whose creativity is complementary. And then when you come together, it's, you know, you get that, that beautiful moment where the sum's greater than the, oh, sorry, was it the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Yeah, um, no, 100%. A very, very interesting journey as well, too. I know that's a person on, so it's, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's weird, but also changing the narrative. I think a little bit too about how you identify yourself mm. and not letting your not letting your narrative drive who you are. Um, this is something too I'm really focused on. Instead of saying, "Oh, I am grumpy," right? It's like, well, no, maybe you're just not feeling very well, right? But you're not grumpy. Like trying to change a little bit of that. I am. I usually do try to change the narrative of yourself and not let the narrative drive who you are mm. but at least in a negative context mm. but more towards a positive context but yeah whole yeah. another podcast there I'm sure absolutely it's funny though because like as I'm thinking back at high school you've got to write an essay and it's got to be this way and you've got to have an intro and you've got to do this and this and this and you know what your teacher wants mm. and so you know how to structure it but it's very formulaic it's, it's, um, you know, it kind of stifles creativity, university, same thing, power planning, same thing. It's a legally binding document that, you know, an organization above you says it needs to look this way. Otherwise we're not going to approve it. Mm. And when I got to the social advisor and I got to start writing, there was no rules. There was no formula. It was invent the formula. And the chances are, if you invent a formula that you love and that you're excited by, the reader's going to enjoy reading it more as well. So having no shackles on my writing, I completely fell in love with writing again. Hmm. And uh, it was amazing because it was this dormant love of mine um, that I just, it, I completely lost touch with it. And uh, through working there, and it didn't take very long, I just completely, you know, became a smitten kitten once again. <laughs> Beautiful. You're such a wordsmith. I love that. Uh, now, from there, probably get to transition on now. You, your time as social advisor ended as well, too. You just kind of take us through that and sort of that next step you're on now. Yeah, it's um, it's funny because it, as, as I look back and, you know, I don't know if you realize this, but as you ask questions in, in this, you know, in the podcast interview, you, you make sense of things. Like it, it may sound like 
I'd thought about a lot of these things before, but I haven't. But I'm, I'm now starting to pick up some patterns, right? It kind of feels like a therapy <laughs> session. <laughs> this is, it's funny, actually. Uh, at the conclusion of Gemma Lloyd's interview, she goes, oh, I feel like that was a therapy session. And I've come to view that as the modicum of, okay, I'm, 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 I'm asking the right questions. Yeah. That's oh, a compliment. Thank absolutely, you. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, I, I think about leaving my home to go to university. I think of leaving Westpac to go work in a small business i think of leaving um the financial planning company to go to social advisor and i just had the same moment um i'd I'd had some fantastic years at the social advisor um i'd really leveled up in terms of i felt like the value i could bring and you know just we were talking before about how how important it is to solve real problems in whatever you do Mm. and um and to actually solve them and you know i felt like i'd just solved so many problems over my time there that i i'd leveled up significantly and i just had that that sense that you know it was just time for something new it was time to leave my comfort zone again and you know really just that <laughs> it just keeps popping up it was just time for a new adventure um i i i'd still i'm still really happy in brisbane um very very happily partnered up with abigail who who's now my fiance mm-hmm. and uh we just decided um well i i just decided you know what the the future is going to look different than it does today um we'd run a really successful conference or you know it, that there was some kpis i'd personally set for how i wanted that to go and um it, it had achieved um, most of those and so i i felt really proud of the the conference we'd put on and you know, there's almost a little bit of symmetry there as well of, well, you know, I started on the conference and it, was, it just felt like a good time for me to end. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I didn't make my mind up about that until after it. It was just um, the conference was all consuming in terms of our energy and then it was over. And then I just had a little bit of reflection time and I, I just felt like it was it was time for something new. Mm. And so uh, I I did what I, I'd done a couple of times, which is just leaving, not necessarily knowing what that next step was. Um, and, yeah, I, I went and... I helped a couple of people who just needed some help. Um, had another really big trip to to Europe, funnily enough, um, but wasn't really about an epiphany or about you know discovering <laughs> or anything. You were and, looking for that book that was just kind of blowing yeah, up the shelf somewhere. Yeah. That's yes, that's the one I need. <laughs> yeah, I, I circled that news agents three times just in case something popped up. The lighting was a little off. Yeah, the lighting was off. Yeah, I forgot to wear my glasses. That <laughs> yeah. Um, no, so yeah, went over there for uh, for my fiance's grandma's ninetieth. Had a fantastic time and kind of just got back from there. And I was like, you know what? Like, and and then I don't think I was sitting. I, I wasn't expecting a lightning bolt, but I, I was looking forward to. Uh, I saw Andrew Denton present at a conference a few years ago, and he was talking about um, being on the radio. And he, uh, I think he'd lost his job. Who's Andrew Denton? Just oh, sorry, he's a. He's a, um, he's a a famous, I suppose, media personality, radio presenter, um, author, uh, a really creative guy in, in Australia. Um, he used to be on the radio and then he, he's very, very famous now for having a TV show called Enough Rope, where he did very similar to what you're doing. He'd, he'd have great interviews with celebrities, but not you know about their latest movie, but really digging into their life and trying to extract the themes. You should try to check it out. I think you'd, mm. you'd actually really get a lot out of it. Um, but he talked about, you know, I, th- I can't remember if he lost his job or if he left, but he had this kind of moment of, um, you know, he was lost and he didn't really know what to do next. And it was only when he kind of allowed himself to silence his voice and remove distractions that he had this idea for enough rope and it became this really successful mm-hmm. thing. 
Um, and I suppose there was an element of that too. Like I, I never felt, particularly having been part of the social advisor since the start, um, I always felt like this disattachment to it that it was like my child. Mm. And, um, you know, whilst it was, it was time for me to go, I never felt like I could work out what that next step was while I was still there. For me, it was like I was either all in or I wasn't in. And so I, I, I was never going to have the perfect plan. It was always I, I, I would leave and then I'd, I'd go find what's next. And um, so that's what I've done. But to be honest, it's not like I've got this triumphant story for you right now of this epiphany, you know, the, uh, this Andrew Denton-like moment. Um, I, I just got back from Europe and I kind of just thought, you know, it's a bit crazy. Like I had people who wanted my help um, I had an ability to help them, but I wasn't helping them. And I think I just broke down the concept of, you know, I probably had a little bit of an attachment to wanting to start a business. You know, there's, I've, I've always my entire life wanted to have my own business. Um, you know, and I had little weird ventures when I was a kid selling, you know, warheads, you know, those sour, really hot lollies, um, you know, in my schoolyard and, um, that was the best business in the world. Actually. I used to sell big red chewing gum, Mm -hmm. um, because, uh, you couldn't get it in Australia, but my dad traveled to America a lot. Uh, but it was such a good business because dad bought all the gum and I was selling it. So I had no costs and it was 100% profit. I'd like to find a business like that. But, uh, but do, you, yeah. do you know why you wanted, why was there such that uh, that yearn for entrepreneurship? What, 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 why was that? What would it look like? Not too sure because my, my dad um, started his entrepreneurial journey pretty late in life. Uh, he was in his 40s, so it wasn't like something where I just, you know, came from a proud lineage of entrepreneurs. Um, I really don't know what it is. Um, I think part of it is is that creating something out of nothing. Like, mm. I, I love the idea of, you know, there's nothing and then all of a sudden you've got a business. Mm. Um, and that's what a small business allows you to do. Um, but, yeah, I think I was kind of, when I left Social Advisor, attached to the idea of I want to start a business, I want to start my own thing. And I felt like... You know, whilst I, I don't like the idea of saying I'm, I'm ready for something, mm-hmm. um, I felt like I had enough skills that I could make a, make a fist of something. Uh, but yeah, when I got back from Europe, I was just like, you know, again, don't, don't look for the perfect plan. Don't look for the perfect name and build this beautiful website and all these things. Just focus on the, the core element of what a business is and that's solving problems. Yeah. That's just helping people and in doing so in a way that's adding real value to them. So that's what I started to do. So I just, you know, I had a couple of people who I'd already spoken to and I'd kind of decided, you know, oh, look, I wasn't ready to talk to them. And then it was time to talk to them. Uh, a few others just emerged out of the woodwork. And, you know, it wasn't really this process of building a business plan or anything like that. Hmm. It was just like helping businesses in a way where I felt like I could help them in a way that gave us both value. And, um, and that's what I've done. And that's, that's what I've created now. Um, I have a LinkedIn profile. I have an email address. I don't have a website. I'm probably the worst example in the world of how to build a business. And, you know, to be honest, I don't know how long I'll be doing what I'm doing now for, but I'm not necessarily attached to it becoming anything. I'm just working with people and businesses that I love, um, that I'm getting a lot of fulfillment out of, but most importantly, that I feel like I'm really helping as well. And, um, you know, doing so in a way where we've got great relationships and we, we have a real openness, which is really helping us both do our job as best as we can. Hmm. Now, this is usually the part of the podcast where then I, I then open up to you to say, well, what about the future? But your response is a little bit going to be a little bit more unconventional, isn't it? Because you're not really looking towards, as you kind of alluded to, you're not really looking towards the future at this point, are you? 
I'm not at the moment. I mean, in my personal life, I very much am. So, you know, um, I, I got engaged a couple of months ago. And so, you know, we're, we're really excited about what that means. And, you know, obviously the wedding, but then the, our life beyond the wedding. Um, so, yeah, I think personally, like, I, I'm really starting to shift my focus towards the future, probably more than I have in a, a few years, just because I've, I've got the space to do so. I'm not so absorbed in what I'm doing now in a business sense because it's I've created it in a way that I'm 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 loving you know it's it's really mm. nice it's I've got a great balance of things at the moment there but then by the same token I, I love the idea of goals and you know, I set myself a really audacious goal at the end of last year and in my mind I was like there's no way I'll be able to achieve <laughs> this um, and I did I, I you know it was a financial goal and. I, I never thought in a million years I'd reach it and I, I got $20 over it, you know. So there's so much science to that. Like, you know, I wish I'd made the goal bigger because I probably would have gone $20 over the bigger target. So I love goal setting. I love focusing on the future and and having something that kind of guides all your decisions along the way. But I just feel like now's just not the right time for me to be doing that. I just feel like for me it's about being in the moment and um, – doing something which I've traditionally not been very good at. You know, usually I'm, I'm focused so much on what's coming next or I'm looking at the past and kind of thinking, oh, how could I have done that differently or, oh, is this, you know. But now for me is about, kind of, you know, take the lessons from the past and, and do things that make you inherently excited for the future but really just focus on what's under your nose now. Yeah. Any ideas as to why you've gone through through that shift I mean like we spoke about you, you know, even as a kid you'd be up at night kind of thing and whatnot but now you you've kind of you've kind of come back to, to quite an opposite. Is any particular thoughts as to why you've kind of gone through that shift now at this point? Probably just, you know, I'm, I, I think I'm just so fulfilled and so happy by, by being this way at the moment that there's just no reason not to. I, it, it's probably a case of if it ain't broke, don't mm. fix it. Um, and, you know, I'm, I, I, I feel like it, it just comes back to that Steve Jobs thing of I know the things I'm doing today will lead to something, but it doesn't matter if they don't because it's great now and, and I'm, I, I'd like to think I'm helping businesses now, but I'm, I'm just loving what I'm doing. Mm. And so for me, it's just about, you know, that for me, it all needs to start from a place of doing what you love mm. um, in a way that's obviously, you know, practical in some sense but really it's about like finding what you're passionate about um, because that will give energy and value to others and then that will that will become something in the future so yeah I think really it's just at the moment I'm loving what I'm doing I know that um, I, know, I know that some good's going to come out of it mm. eventually but it it doesn't have to I, I just I'm just trust. Trusting myself more than I've ever trusted myself before. Um, I got, you know, not so much my parents, but, but certain people in my life, when, when I tell them what I'm doing or how I'm going about it, they, you can kind of see the fear and the panic go across <laughs> that, that there's such a lack of uh, yeah. stability in what I'm doing. Um, but all I'm just going to go off is that um, it feels right. And um, the, the whole thing in Screwwork Let's Play is if, if you're doing something that you love, the chances are is that you're going to be doing it quicker and better than mm. the people around you. Um, that if you just try and identify something that's going to be lucrative and you try and play in that market, and the only reason you're doing it is because it's going to be give you heaps of money as opposed to you loving doing it, mm. there's going to be someone else in there who's doing the same thing, but they're so much more passionate that they'll add 
uh, you know, they'll add insight and value to that that you can't even see because you're not as passionate, um, but they'll also just keep pushing through and, you know, they'll stick it out longer than you because they love it. So there's no point just playing a game because it's logical. It's it, it's almost about playing a game because it just feels right to you mm. um, and that, you know, it, it gets you out of bed in the morning consistently. Yeah, absolutely. I think as well, too, that's, I think that's, another reoccurring theme and I don't think it's a much of a surprise probably listeners that if you do what you love you're going to be better at it right because I mean I can think of things I don't particularly love and I'm probably not particularly good at them why would I I haven't put the time and energy into master those particular things and I'm probably really just thinking about getting it done kind of thing but at the same time how many times and I know we were chatting about this beforehand how many times though do you still do you force yourself to do things that you don't necessarily particularly love to do. So, but I think there's still a healthy balance within that and you can't maybe get rid of everything you hate, but it's a constant process to still be aware of that and to be true to yourself and just be honest, maybe even better word instead of true, just be honest with yourself. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I am. Yeah. It's so true. Uh, And, and another way to look at it is like, if you are doing something you don't love, you're robbing someone who loves that, the opportunity mm. to do it. So you're actually taking away a little piece of joy for them as well. Love uh, it. So yeah, if you can if you can find people who are kind of the yin to your yang, it's uh, yeah, it, it doesn't just help you, you know, it helps other people as well. So as always in every chat, obviously um, I really appreciate your time, but just keeping on, we should probably jump into the rapid fire questions. Are you ready to go? I'm ready to go, but I just want to ask you, is it like family feud where you have a time limit? <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Um, with the questions, you can take as long as you're short. You can pass. If you want to answer a completely different way of it, there's no no set thing. It's however you want to take it. And if you want me to, if you want to stall it all, let me know. I'm happy to sort of jump in and fill in a moment while you sort of take a think. And um, let's go for it. Sounds good. So this first question, we might have already answered it, but I'd love maybe if there's maybe a second example you can give. And that is, what book has most changed your life? And I'd love if you could place it as to where you read it and what context did it change everything? Oh, yeah, I think we've already answered that one. Is there a second one or something other that you maybe... Yeah, it's going to be the weirdest <laughs> answer of my entire interview. Um there's a book called There's a Monster at the End of This Book. And it is about Grover from Sesame Street. It's a golden book. And it's Grover from Sesame Street. Um, basically, every single page, he is warning you to not turn the page because there's a monster at the end of the book. And, you know, it goes from just don't turn the page to how many times do I need to tell you to please, like he's pleading. And it's just like that every page is just a new way of saying don't turn the page. And it turns out, and spoiler alert, sorry guys, Grover is the monster at the end of the book. (laughs) But the reason it's changed my life is that um, my mum used to read it to me. But mum didn't just read it. Like, she fully got into character. Mm. And she, like, put on... She did a great Grover voice, Anne Beck. And uh, when I just think back, we had so many fun times. Like, I was captivated by her. Um, But it actually really taught me, like, how important it is that when you do something... You just do it really well and like give of yourself and how much of a difference that makes. Mm. Um, same words, same book read by someone who was less passionate. It would have no effect on me and I wouldn't have enjoyed it. Mm. Um, so yeah, always give your all. doesn't matter what you're doing. It makes a difference. Beautiful analogy. Beautiful, beautiful analogy. Um, who's been the greatest influence on your life growing up? And it could be somebody you didn't know or some other prominent figure. 
Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I I obviously have heard a few of the episodes, so and I've, I've actually answered a few of your questions in my head when I'm listening. <laughs> like, well, how would I answer that? So it's so lovely to be able to answer them. Um, I'd say my grandfather, a guy by the name of Neville Back, who just such an incredible human being. Uh, we were really, really tight. Um, he he unfortunately had cancer for a few years, and um, what it would mean was he would come to to stay with us in Sydney. He was living in the country, but he'd come to Sydney and he'd spend months on end. Um, and it was usually around Christmas holiday. So I, I was so lucky to have had that time with him, but um, to really just, you know, like have one-on-one time and hear his stories. And they're often the same stories over and over again. But what I loved about Pop was that he was really emotional. Like he would, if he were watching the news and something happened to a kid, like something really bad to a kid, he'd start crying. Mm. And, um, you know, he'd get choked up reading a, an old bush poem to me because of how beautiful it was. And um, by the same token, then that same night, he'd be putting on his glasses and impersonating John Howard. Um, or he would let me, as a, as a younger child, put gel in his hair. He, he had no hair. He used to say, uh, he used to say, all well, the brains had pushed his hair out. But um, he had like that kind of weird bit of hair around the side and then just like these long strands down the middle that, you know, it's like that, that, that classic, classic old, old Australian man hairdo. Um, and so when you, when you put it up, it's probably talking like 20 to 30 centimeters of length and he'd let me gel it straight up. And I just think he, he made me realize like, don't put on a show, like just experience life full, full gamut. Don't be afraid to be a, a bit of an idiot and be a bit silly and make people laugh. Don't be afraid to cry if you're feeling sad about something. Um, he was just, yeah, he had some old school values too. Like, you know, you can always judge a man by the way he shines his shoes and cuts his nails. So, <laughs> and I like a few of those sentiments about, you know, the one percenters and the little things yeah. making a big difference. But I think he was just such an amazing role model for me and just be yourself and be raw and it's okay to be emotional. Mm. And, um, you know, he was also, and this is written on his, on his grave, it says, um, the man who was never in a hurry because... We'd always try and rush him. We'd always try and hurry him up. And I'd say, never in a hurry, never in a hurry. And everyone would be ripping their hair out. But um, I just love the calmness and the pace at which he lived his life. And it's probably the bit that I've, I've adopted the least. I feel like I'm a little bit frantic. But um, just just a wonderful role model. Mm, beautiful. What gives you a disproportionate return on your investment of time and energy? Uh, there's, a, there's a few things here. But in the interests of the rapid fire nature of this series of questions, um, I'd say saying thank you and genuinely meaning it when you say it. Um, and that can be just randomly at an unexpected time, just letting someone know how much you appreciate it. Um, often it's at the time someone does something or even just little habits I adopt. Like, you know, if I go visit a client, I'll often send them a thank you message. Um, and it's not just this kind of formulaic thing. It's just the, I feel the need to kind of close that loop and show them that I appreciate a particular aspect of what happened. I just think a lot of the time we take things for granted and yeah, I, I feel like it's a really binding experience for someone to know how much you appreciate them. Absolutely. I love as well too. We, we, you spoke a little bit about the origins of that as well too. Are you okay sharing that here? Oh yeah, that's, yeah, that was a, <laughs> you know, it's funny, you know, sometimes when you go back to stories from your childhood and like you still feel the pain attached to it, <laughs> I still feel the pain attached to this one. Uh, my, I remember my dad, he'd like traveled interstate and, um, you know, I, I was very fortunate to have a dad that he'd always like buy me a little present and that was the exciting bit about <laughs> dad coming home. 
And um, I think on this occasion, he might have forgotten to buy me something. So it was like last minute, you know, waiting for the taxi at the train station. He, um, he bought me like a little cup of lollies, I think. From memory, there was a little, uh, little bottle shop that sold lollies as well as beer. And he probably just grabbed a, <laughs> grabbed a long neck and a pack of lollies. But um, he brought them home to me and I looked at them when he gave them to me. And I kind of turned my nose up and I said, oh, I don't like those lollies. And I remember dad looking me in the eye and he was really unhappy. And he said, you never ever ever say that when someone gives you something if someone gives you a gift it doesn't matter whether you like it or not you say thank you you appreciate the fact that they've done something nice for you and um the week after that i, I think it was just close to my birthday my, my auntie mish who's uh, my godmother and my mom's twin sister she called and uh and she said oh you know it's your birthday coming up is there a, you know what would you like and I said, oh, it doesn't matter what you buy me, Auntie Mish, I won't be ungrateful. And, uh, you know, I got paid out a lot in my family for, for being such a wiener by saying that. But, uh, <laughs> but I, you know, it's funny. When you look back, like, I think that's probably made me really grateful for, for everything in life and to just never forget to, to say thank you. And to also, it, it isn't just saying thanks. It's actually just appreciating what's around you and, and seeing those great things as well. Absolutely. I'm a big believer that time is our most precious our most precious thing and somebody's time is the most precious gift and to, to be able to spend time with somebody as I'm so grateful to do during these chats, um, especially people who are so busy and probably, probably would rather be doing other things than sitting here speaking into a microphone, rehashing their life through a semi semi therapy session. But to be so, to be so thankful that I get so much of, and we get so much of the most precious thing in that other people's time. So it's something that I don't think can be, can be under thanked enough. One of my friends is thinking of starting a podcast at the moment and he said to me the other day, mate, it would be so easy to get guests. People love talking about themselves. And I had a chuckle and I think, it's pretty true. Like, this isn't hard for people. People love people love talking about themselves. Yeah, they do. You they just do. Tap, you're just giving us a forum to, to, <laughs> to not look like wankers. <laughs> um, what... What mantra or inspirational quote has most changed your life and why? And I love if you could place it as to where you first heard it. It was around the time when, you know, I might have painted an unnecessarily negative picture of my time as a power planner. The role itself just was giving me nothing. But the, the environment I was in was great. Like that, there was, I had a great group of people. I mean, I made some awesome friends. And yeah, the, the, the vibe of coming to work and having a laugh and, you know, we, we also were impersonating some of the people in the office. Yeah, it was pretty fun. <laughs> pretty fun times, really. But um, I remember one of my mates um, who is he's a bit of an epic thinker, this guy, and he, uh, you know, he loves the profound quotes. But I was telling him about my situation once and he wasn't talking about me, but I, I think he kind of was. And he said, you know, the, the one thing that's stopping us from a great life is a good life. And I remember that was just one of those, like, you know, the, the hair, you know, stood up at the <laughs> back of my neck moments where you go, so true. Like if something is horrible and really, really bad, you just get out of it usually. Like, you know, it's, it's fight or flight, but really it's, it's so uncomfortable that you do something about mm. it. But good, like when something's good but not great, it's comfortable enough that you can stick it out but it's not fulfilling enough that it's giving you anything mm. or that you, you're you know, reaching your potential. And it was just this epiphany where I was like, I just realized I'd, I'd been settling for a lot of good and I, I probably deserved great. We all deserve, we mm. all deserve to be doing things that, that are great and that, you know, make us feel great. And so, um, yeah, 
Uma, if you're listening, I don't know if you've realized the effect that that had on me, but it certainly did. Mm. If you could give a 20-minute TED Talk or some other speech on something that you're maybe not well-known for, but really interested in, maybe a hobby or something else, what would it be and why? I have no... This is the one I couldn't answer. I've, I've been thinking about this. I would say the history of Australian television commercial jingles from the 90s. That is eclectic. I don't know how much value would be in the TED Talk, but um, I've got a mate, um, and when we sit down together and have a beer or whatever, we'll often kind of get onto this topic, and I could talk for hours about it. I just... Why, though? Why... I've always loved music. Music's a really important part of my life, and I, I think growing up, I just really appreciated the, the quality of a good catchy jingle on mm. TV. Um, I remember as a kid actually writing my own jingles in my head, <laughs> um, just like, oh, if I was selling this product, what jingle would I write? And I'd actually like write the song. It was always like another song I knew, and I just changed the lyrics. Mm. But just always loved a good jingle. I think too in the '90s there was like this. I don't know if it's the same in Canada, but in Australia there was just like an influx of jingles like there was just you know the decoré ad and you know the Coddy's Coddy's ad there's just so many you know happy little Vegemites that's a that's a classic that's many <laughs> many years old but uh yeah so I I just I feel really confident in that topic I reckon I reckon if anyone said to me oh do you remember this one I'd be able to sing it on mm. on cue hmm. but I don't know if there's a TED talk there I don't know. Maybe it's a trivia night. <laughs> maybe. I would have thought you would have talked about being a wedding MC, as uh, as maybe listeners don't know that you're quite a well-known wedding MC, aren't you? Yeah, actually, that would probably, that would be up there as well. I feel like I've done my 10,000 hours of the wedding yeah, MC. Absolutely. It could be a TED Talk. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think, uh, yeah, that the 90s definitely holds me like... Um, yeah, I could pretty much quote any Simpsons episode from the 90s as well. <laughs> I, I'm not as good with the more recent ones, but uh, yeah. yeah they're, 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 most of it's useless. I remember my dad saying when I was a kid, um, I, w- I wish you could remember your school homework as well as you remember, insert TV show, insert, insert jingle here. So yeah, there's probably something there, but uh, we'd need to find the value. But uh, yeah, wedding MC, maybe you could do that one too. Who knows? Trivia nights, you uh, you might all of a sudden find yourself with an influx of invites to trivia nights now with the 90s theme. So. Yeah, that sounds fun. Um, love if you could take us through your morning routine. Yeah, it's, um, you know, and uh, I'm not just pumping your tires, but I didn't have much of a morning routine until you started asking this question and it made me start building one. Um, so it's a pretty recent addition, but it's it's been phenomenal. Um, I can't remember the name of the guy who you interviewed who um, he used to be a hip-hop artist. And uh, Jason Price. Jason, yeah. yes. Yeah. Jason, I've never met you, but um, you you kind of just jolted me into action. I used to, when I was younger, listen to music every morning and it really set the, set the tune for my day. And um, I stopped doing that and I didn't realize it until you were saying how, how important that is to your ritual. So um, my typical morning routine now and I think I was mentioning this to you before, Dustin, that I, I have this constant battle where I value routine and I love what it brings to your life in terms of discipline, but I also love adventure and I also um, I love novelty and things not necessarily being the same all the time. Mm. So what I've found now is I've got a shell of a morning routine, but then the components of it can vary. So mm-hmm. that gives me enough variety, but it still <laughs> kind of ticks the boxes. Um, so I get up early. I'm a, um, 
I'm a morning person. My my lovely partner isn't, and that's all good because I'm happy to help set up her morning in any way I can. What time do you get up? Uh, I get up, when I say early, not that early, like six. Um, I usually will just do some chores. I find chores really calming. It's almost mm-hmm. like a bit of mindful time. Um, and then I'll make my juices for the day. So I'm a big Nutribullet man, and I love making a breakfast juice and a lunch juice. And that mm-hmm. kind of locks in two-thirds of my healthy eating for the day. <laughs> Makes the rest pretty guilt-free. It does. Yeah. Um, I always have my headphones in in that time, but um, what I'm listening to depends. So sometimes if I'm just feeling like I just want to unwind and kind of chill, um, I'll listen to like a Simpsons podcast or or some kind of lighthearted stuff. Um, sometimes I'm ready to just like learn and level up. So I might listen to a, more of an educational podcast or just a book that I'm reading at that time. Um, or sometimes it's about music. So I'm feeling in a certain way and I may want to feel a different way. So I'll just choose some music that, that kind of suits that mood. Mm. Um, I then uh, finish up with, uh, we got this really great chair in the lounge room where I sit and I'll, I'll do a little meditation. Uh, I don't get around to that every day, but if I can do say four of those a week, I'd be really happy. Um, and it's pretty funny. Then, then it's time about five minutes before it's time to wake up abs. I, I always bring her in a cup of tea. She loves that. But, um, our dog, uh, he, he knows the routine so well <laughs> and, um, he lays in his bed the entire time I'm doing everything. I'm walking around and he, his little sausage dog, very, very protective. So usually he's like following me everywhere. But in that moment, he just kind of just chilling in his bed mm. and he, he knows there's not time for action. But as soon as like, I'll put the tea bag in, I'll, I'll feel you know, let the tea steep. I'll take the tea bag, I'll put the milk, and it's literally as soon as the fridge closes and the milk's away, he jumps up, he yes. knows it's time to go see mum. <laughs> and so uh, then we take the cup of tea in and uh, say good morning, and then that's the uh, you know, that's kind of when both of our mornings start. But it's been really, um, I, I think probably a little bit of the only child in me just values that that solo time in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I read a, an amazing book at the start of the year called The Third Space by Dr. Adam Fraser. And um, a lot of it is about kind of uh, setting your intent and how important that is. So, yeah, I really like to use that time in the morning to do that as well. Mm, excellent. Um, I suppose lastly, I always want to ask the question that if you could go back and give young Michael a bit of advice, not to, not to change the course of your path, not to make it easier, but to, to make it a bit more bearable, I guess. What would that maybe be? What do you think Michael needed to hear? Yeah, that's, gosh, there's many things. Um, I'm torn between be yourself. It's really simple, but I think for many years I was trying to fit a mold of people around me that I think, you know, I I thought would make me accepted. Whereas it was in those times at uni when I I was just being more of myself that, that, you know, I realized that was enough. Um, also trust yourself and I think to be honest that the be yourself is something I'm, I'm pretty at peace with these days and I feel like as I get older I'm just more comfortable in my skin I think that's pretty common mm. but the trust yourself um, it's definitely something I'd say to my younger self but it's definitely something that I, I need to keep um, reiterating to myself is just you know not not necessarily looking to everyone around you for the answers but actually just backing yourself and going you probably know more than you think you're probably better than you think. And yeah, I th- I've definitely been guilty in the past of selling myself a bit short mm-hmm. and um, yeah, just, the, just, just probably believing, you know, a bit of that imposter syndrome that other people are, are better equipped to do X, Y, Z than me. Uh, 
something I've, I, I'd say I've improved in, but something I, I could be a lot better at. But yeah, be yourself, trust yourself. Beautiful. Um, for everybody listening, if they want to stay up to date on your journey as you continue to go through, where can they, uh, where can they follow you? Where, where can they get in touch? Well, this might make me a little more accountable. Um, like I've said a couple of times throughout the interview, I really love the underdog. And um, I'm feeling like Twitter's a bit of an underdog at the moment. And, <laughs> and no one, it seems like people are moving away from it, which has made me think maybe uh, I'm going to jump back on Twitter. So, yeah, my Twitter handle is Mick Jack Back. Um, it's a flip of the coin. You'll either go on there and see that I'm active or not. Um, but the other way is, uh, is, is LinkedIn, um, if, if it's more of a professional thing. But I'm also pretty open to people adding me on Facebook. I, uh, you know, I, I'm pretty, pretty chronic at adding people on Facebook when I meet them just because I think it's a nice way to kind of to start a relationship. So, yeah, whatever way you can find me, I'm, I'm happy to connect with you. Excellent. We'll make sure we have all the links in the uh, in the notes and everywhere else they can stay connected with you. But, Michael, uh, I've been very generous with your time. Thank you so much for parting all your wisdom to myself and my listeners here today. Um, I'm really excited for round two. I'm really excited for where your journey continues to take you. But uh, yeah, again, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you, mate. It's been really fun. Hi, everyone. And thank you again for joining me for today's chat. Please make sure you jump on Facebook to quickly like and share this podcast episode. If you're not already following me, please take another quick minute to hit that like button so you can stay up to date with all new podcast episodes, exciting announcements, and other things going on. You can find me on Facebook at Project Y2, that's at Project Y and the number two, and you can also follow me on LinkedIn if you're there. Don't forget to share and rate this on wherever you find your podcast episodes, and I look forward to having you join me again for our next Y2 podcast.